Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of February 2nd, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about New England's 28-24 win over Seattle in Super Bowl 49. We'll discuss the Seahawks' decision to throw from the one-yard line at the end of the game rather than try to run it in. Jermaine Curse's amazing catch that got them down near the goal line. And the stardom of the Patriots' undrafted rookie, Malcolm Butler, and the Seahawks' ex-footlocker employee, Chris Matthews. Two guests will be here to gab about all this stuff. Grantland's Brian Curtis will bring us his view from Arizona. And NBC's lead producer, Fred Gadelli will offer his thoughts from the truck, where he oversaw his fifth Super Bowl broadcast is he still in the truck? on Sunday night. He's in the truck. He's, He's in the truck. locked in the truck. AAA is on the way. Well, he's got a mobile truck unit that he walks around in. Uh, our bonus segment for Slate Plus members will discuss Key and Peel's East-West Bowl 3 which features such players as Legume, Dupree, Swordless Mimetown, and Debrickashaw Ferguson. <laughs> Last one. <laughs> that is a good one, Mike. Uh, joining me in Washington, D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. And New Yorker writer. I'd like that appended to my... Really? Uh, what, what you write? I had a piece on the website. On oh, on the website. No, no pending. Why? No, no, no. Sorry, it's got to be a Come problem. on. No. Dot com. <laughs> <laughs> the internet is, uh, it's not where it's at. You got to be in the print edition. Damn. Sorry, Stefan. That's why Josh is not a slate writer. My book was reviewed in the print edition 15 years ago. New Yorker reviewed author, Stefan Fatsis. Thank you. With us from New York, it's Mike Pesca, host of Slate's Daily Podcast. The gist with Mike Pesca soon Coming in print. In Guns and Ammo. You've been in Guns and Ammo, right? Bound copy. Cat Fancy? Mm hmm. Cat Fancy, Guns and Ammo. I will be speaking about cats in my afterball, I believe. Uh, Delicious. I think Cat Fancy folded recently. 
Yeah, some, something happened. for feline lovers. Yeah, it was. Sad day for go-to magazine joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's do the last whimsy watch of the season. And I think the last whimsy watch of all time. I think we want to leave them wanting more. Wanting more whimsy. Demanding it. Craving it. Like a cat craves fancy. Doug Baldwin scored to put the Seahawks at 24 to 14. Third quarter. Then he, a la Randy Moss, maybe to celebrate the 10th anniversary of Randy Moss's quote-unquote disgusting act, as per Joe Buck when he mooned the crowd at Lambeau Field. Baldwin mimed dropping trow and then appeared to mime defecating the football. Whimsy? Painful, if he actually <laughs> defecated a football. That, I don't know if he got it, but that's an Adam Carolla bit. He's been talking about, Carolla's been talking about that for years. He has. Yes, that that would be the greatest Super Bowl celebration. He frequently interviews people associated with the NFL and begs them to do that. And Baldwin wouldn't say why he did it, right? He said, that is between me and the guy it was directed at. Maybe it was directed at Adam, Adam Carolla. Carolla. Me and my God. <laughs> it's between now, me but and is it whimsy Lord. when only the, the spectators in the stadium can watch it? Because NBC did not show it. There were still photographs. John Beaver was there. He was... He was clicking away. <laughs> There's probably a flip book, a Doug Baldwin football defecation flip book yeah. commemorative you can buy on NFL.com. Japanese vending machines are now <laughs> selling that. Um, I think the football that he defecated, Tops is cutting it up into 10,000 small pieces. <laughs> Actually, it's, yes, it's been bought by Northern Tissue. <laughs> There's, now a, <laughs> There's now a Doug Baldwin football poop emoji that you can get on select uh, phones that have the NFL license. Should we end? I, th I think that might have been the whimsical moment of the Super Bowl. Am I missing anything, Pesca? It, well, yeah, it wasn't great, but we only have one game to choose from. It's true. Well, if there were other games... What would the whimsical moment have been? I guess the, there were a couple of other potentially whimsical moments. Squeezing the football to see if there was air in it. Who did that? One of the Seattle uh, Byron Maxwell. Byron Maxwell. I think, I think Katy funny. Perry doing the more you know PSA during the halftime show. Whimsy. Pretty whimsical. I thought that was... Can I just say I thought that was the best halftime show I've ever seen? Like, I didn't really get what a halftime show should be for the last 48 years, a few of which I haven't been alive for. And then she did it in the Sharks dance. I'm like, that's what a halftime show should be. We've been overthinking this. Let's get someone who's really great with a lot to say and make them do a 12-minute set of their oeuvre. Nah, I get Katy Perry. She's happy to ride a tiger. That's what America wants. My girlfriend pointed out, which made me kind of depressed, like the people in the shark costumes probably have, like, been to Juilliard it's like 20 years of dance training. Or at least, least SeaWorld. <laughs> One of the above. Um, but I did like how the trees had facial expressions. So mm -hmm. there was no question about the emotional state of right. the trees. That could be confusing for children. For every kid that ever had to play a tree in the school play, those are the Lawrence Olivier's of foliage. Oh, maybe they played the tree in sixth grade and it's on their resume and they got this gig. Yeah. Tree experience. All right, the Patriots and the Super Bowl are just good entertainment. They are the Katy Perry halftime show of NFL Super Bowl participants. This is the sixth time the Pats played in the title game in the Belichick-Brady era. And Sunday's 28-24 win tied for the largest margin of victory ever in one of those games, uh, with the six decided by three, 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 four, and four points. The Patriots... Brady and Belichick have now won four Super Bowls, though this was the first New England Super Bowl win since they beat the Eagles way back in 2005. 
Brady was named the game's MVP for the third time, throwing two interceptions, but also completing 37 of 50 passes, 328 yards, four touchdowns, including the game winner to Julian Edelman with just more than two minutes to go. Brady was not on the field, though, for the game's two most memorable plays. The first uh, was kind of a successor to... Baldwin pooping? (laughs) (laughs) He was not on the field for that. Um, There was the successor to David Tyree's helmet catch, the one that sunk the Pats seven years ago. Um, This one came when Seattle's Jermaine Curse somehow snagged a ball that bounced off Malcolm Butler, the Patriots cornerback, then off Curse himself, then landed in Curse's hands as he laid supine on the ground. The second uh, big play came two snaps later. Butler jumped in front of Seattle receiver Ricardo Lockett with the Seahawks on the one-yard line, intercepted Russell Wilson, clinched the game for New England. Uh, Mike, since I know that you always like to have these numbers at the ready, advanced NFL stats game probability. You just, I know it. You just jumped the route. Yeah. I did. Seattle win probability. Went okay, from, can I guess it? All right. What was it before Curse's catch? Oh, before Curse's catch? Mm. Oh, 41. It was 21. Oh, wow. That's a little low to me. Well, when the ball was actually tipped by his leg, I could see it was 21, <laughs> but okay. Wait, what was it after Edelman's touchdown? Wasn't it like 4%? Stephen, I'm this sorry. Is, I'm this part isn't scripted. I don't know what, what it was after Edelman's touchdown. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't actually have the stats programmed into his head. Uh, all, right. all right. After Curse's catch when they had it on the one-yard line. I would say 89%. 81. It was 88%. Good job, Mike. I hosted a Super Bowl party, and I realized everyone I invited knew nothing about football, so they really relied on me. And I said at that time, they're, they, uh, someone said, are they likely to score? And I say, top of my head, 85% chance of scoring. <laughs> Yep, so that's good. What's uh, the top of my head is like the wind projection. I'm doing well. And then when uh, after the Pats intercepted it, 1%. Yeah. 88% to 1% in one play. And then after Michael Bennett jumped offside, negative that was it? <laughs> quadrillion percent. We will talk about Butler, the man, in our next segment. But let's start with Seattle's decision to pass rather than try to run it in from the one-yard line. They had one timeout remaining. The clock was ticking under a minute to go. Uh, here's... Coach Pete Carroll's explanation after the game. I think that was Pete Carroll's explanation. Uh, really what happened down there, just to, really frankly, it's really clear that uh, we went to three receivers. They sent in their goal line people, and we had plenty of downs, and we had a timeout. And they really just didn't want to run against our goal line group right there. We were going to we would have subbed and done our stuff for the, for the third and fourth down. No, really clear thought. We used our timeout, and, and we would have taken those shots. Uh, that's it. And, and we call the play, and it's a miraculous play that the kid makes to get in front of that route. It's a, it's a play that really tries to keep him from making that play. But uh, so it really, I, I told those guys that's my fault totally. You know, I, I we could because everybody just why don't you just run it? You know, and just that, that's a, that's a real good thought. Uh, but we had plenty of time to win the game, and we would have, in our minds, we thought we'd done it on third and fourth down, uh, and that's how we were playing for third and fourth down, giving no time left, and it would have been just right. But it didn't work out that way. We should add for our listeners. Also, in the background, you heard the bus schedule out of Phoenix <laughs> being announced. <laughs> That made no, I mean, I, I think my explanation made more sense. The explanation made sense, but for the actual facts of the game. They were, he was saying it's a waste play. He was saying, you don't, it, essentially, you we don't throw the score, ball really to kind of waste that play. You, you don't want to score too early. He was saying two things. He was saying, you don't want to score too early, but since Belichick didn't call timeout, which is inexplicable to me. Correct. 
someone explic that because that's inexplicable and much actually more inexplicable than throwing the ball. Okay, so he was saying essentially you don't want to score too early, but also the pass there establishes the threat of the pass for what you really want to do is run the last two downs. But you know what? That's like saying my guillotining you establishes the threat of me shooting you. (laughs) Once the head is clean off, you don't have to worry about it. So, you know, Marshawn Lynch three times from the one is going to score. Two times is probably going to score two. But how could he not score three times? From he the can't. One? Well, they could not have run the ball three times. They didn't have enough time to run three times. They only had one timeout. So they had to throw at some point. And the question is, if you're going to... Unless they ran it in Unless they ran it in down. on second down, which seems like it was a, a certainly a possible outcome given that they have one of the most mobile quarterbacks in football and the best running back in football and an opportunity to do whatever the hell they wanted against the, the, the Patriots defense. I mean, they could have run the read option. They could have gone straight up the middle. There's lots of things you can do when you're on the one-inch line or whatever they were, one-yard line. To me, what was so emblematic of that play, of the end of this game, was how it reflects the power of the NFL, like where the power lies. It is a coach's league. Even if Russell Wilson, and maybe this is just because it's Russell Wilson and he's not a, he's not Tom Brady, he's not 37 and he hasn't been in the league for 15 years. He didn't have the ability or the balls to say, this is fucking stupid. I'm going to hand off to Marshawn Lynch. I'm going to override the coach's call and call what I see on the field because I have, I am a great athlete. I have an incredible athlete standing behind me, and that's how we should win this game. Instead, this is what football players are trained to do. They're trained to follow blindly their coaches who take away their own intrinsic intellect and ability at these kinds of moments. Wow. Thank you. That was very football-y of you to say that a player didn't have the balls to do something. Yeah. (laughs) That was was intense. Yeah. Hot take. Stefan Patsis loves manliness. Um, so what Carol didn't account for is the low probability outcome of the ball getting intercepted. This is a play designed to not be intercepted. Not every uh, unlike a lot of every play is designed play. that way, but this was a particular route that you throw because it is a quote unquote safe, safe play. And talking about it being a coach's league, it's interesting and you know, we made the choice here just as you know, most other media did. You de-emphasize the actual play that was made by the player to mm-hmm. make a fantastic move to undercut the route and catch the ball and instead focus on the guy who didn't actually do anything, but who, you know, decided whether it was Daryl Bevel or Pete Carroll to run that that pass route. But a bad thing can happen no matter what kind of play sure, you Marshawn run. Marshawn Lynch could have fumbled. Marshawn Lynch could have fumbled. But, and this Ernest Biner could is have often how NFL coaches make their decisions. If Marshawn Lynch fumbles or he gets stuff, stuff multiple times, he's not going to be criticized. It's the safe call and the one that's less likely to have you talked about on podcasts on Monday morning. Um, it also might that, be the that call the that leads to most. you winning the game, though. Yeah. Well, Brian Burke, the uh, the guru mm-hmm. of uh, win probability, in his discussion of this after the game, he said, you know, the reason that you throw it on second down there is then if you don't complete it, again, the interception is a very low probability event. If Then you have third down with the clock stopped and one timeout left. Mm-hmm. That way, the defense has to 
cover the run and the pass on both third down and fourth down. Whereas if you run it on second down, and it's not particularly a low probability event to not get in if you run it on second down. I think I heard after the game that like Marshawn Lynch had run it from the one yard line during the regular season five times and only gotten in one time. Right. But overall, I think twice stuffed twice. Yeah. And I think that overall the league average is about 55%. So much higher chance that you won't get in by running the ball, then you'll get the ball intercepted by throwing the ball. Much higher chance. So then you have to use your timeout, and then that means the defense knows what's coming on third down and fourth down. They know you have to pass, because if you get stuffed again, you lose the game. During 2014, 57.5% of all rushing plays from the one uh, resulted in touchdowns. And this was the only, I, I saw this on the ticker, this was the only time that a pass was intercepted, intercepted from, the one. From, the, from the one all year. So Small sample size. Low, yeah. low probability. So... I think that people have been too quick to say that this was the dumbest play call in history. I mean, you could reasonably argue that they outsmarted themselves, but there was thinking behind it, and it wasn't completely brainless. Well, it's it wasn't also stupid. done in a split second in the heat of this moment. The other part that you're not discussing, though, Josh, is the kind of passing play that you call in that situation. You know, something over the middle like that, a slant route, the potential for getting tipped is there, uh, the potential for the ball getting intercepted obviously exists, as opposed to throwing deep to your six foot five inch wide receiver into the corner of the end zone to give Russell Wilson a chance also to just throw the ball away if nothing is there. I mean, that's probably a little bit safer. Probably. Maybe. So I think that there was a single digit percent chance that it gets intercepted as evidenced by the fact that it's never happened from the one as evidenced by the fact that that New England had its big goal line package in. So all linemen, you know, the big guys, the guys who are keyed up for the run as evidenced by the fact that Wilson's a better quarterback than that usually. And even though Bevel was so brutally criticized for saying that Lockett got bumped off the ball. Guess what? Lockett got bumped off the ball. Mm-hmm. He did it. He did a bad job. Wilson did a bad job. It's yeah, the not ball was play. too high. It was in it was in a tough position for him to catch. Lockett also had his arms, his hands twisted the wrong way to catch it. It wasn't great execution, but it was also like an incredibly tense moment. You can't say it was a good play call, especially with Marshawn Lynch there, but everything and I also don't criticize Chris Collinsworth for giving his take right there, and it did seem like a bad call, but of all the calls in the game, yeah, obviously that lost the game for them and that cemented the game for them, but there were many, many other calls that were bad. And also, what about the whole genius of Pete Carroll? He coached a great game. So did Belichick. Don't we have to assume that these guys are excellent coaches because they know a lot more than we do? Mm -hmm. So to descend on them for this one, as USA did in this headline, what on earth was Seattle thinking with the worst play call in NFL history? Come on, guys. I think we've established it wasn't a good call, but it is, you know, even defensible, literally, in the case of this play. Well, Seattle went down the field at the end of the first half with 30 seconds to go. And scored a touchdown, which I think was the only time or maybe the second time all year that a team did that with so little time. And Carroll decided to put the offense on the field with six seconds to go rather than kick a field goal, which is what Collins I pres- was urging him to do. Well, I presumed that he would do, too, because there does seem like a chance, a, a pretty good chance that you're not going to have time to run another play. And it worked. And they scored a touchdown. So. Um, that's, that's an instance where I thought Collinsworth was totally wrong because six seconds is plenty of time for a, a great NFL team, for a good NFL team, for an average NFL quarterback to execute a play. 
or to have the the sense to throw the ball away and be aware of the clock. But so how anyway, can, it worked. But it how can you say? But how can you say that? Aren't you confusing process with outcome when you say that and also criticize them for having the ball intercepted? Because the chance that you're going to get the ball intercepted on that throw at the very end of the game seems way lower to me than the chance that somehow something is going to get fouled up with six seconds to go. Except that I don't think that it's just the fact that it got intercepted. It's that there were three plays to go one yard. It is the call at that in that situation. It isn't just the risk of getting intercepted. It's that you know, the the stakes were different. You know, you go into the locker room 14-10 or 14-14, not a huge difference because you are going to get the ball back at the beginning of the second half. So that was like sort of the, the kind of risky, forward-thinking, progressive, exciting play calling that we've become yeah. accustomed to with Seattle. It was great. It was fun to watch. It was, it was terrific. And it's the kind of thing I thought that Collinsworth should have been endorsing. Like, we want to see this excitement. We so don't the more see... important the moment, the less progressive you should be. Well, the more important the moment, you also have have to be practical and the practical I mean tell me you didn't when you saw Russell Wilson take two steps back to throw I actually screamed at the television oh my god he's throwing <laughs> I did not do that I did that <laughs> Stefan did that people I just questioned I just said beast mode like <laughs> and then all of all of Mike's guests were like who's beast mode what does that mean so Brady Emma turned to me and said, Dad, don't they still have beast mode? I'm like, they still have beast mode. It's like if you if you if you buy the SUV with the four-wheel drive, this is when you use it, right? You have the beast mode. Use the beast mode. Maybe if he had talked more in the press conferences, they would have given him the ball. Brady in the last couple drives was 13 of 15 with two touchdowns. And they were able to use the kind of short passing game that Denver tried to do. I didn't feel like the New England game plan was hugely different than what the Broncos did, but it was a total contrast in terms of effectiveness. And my theory on this is in two parts. Number one, Jeremy Lane had that horrible injury after intercepting the ball in the beginning of the game, and they had to bring in Therald Simon, the backup. And uh, the Patriots pretty ruthlessly just went after him the entire rest of the game, which which really... Worked out well for them. And also you had Sherman and Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor all with injuries. And so that must have had some kind of effect. The Seattle secondary wasn't at full strength. But also I thought it was interesting that Den- – so Denver's top targets, they had Welker, but also Demarius Thomas, Eric Decker, like very traditional kinds of wide receivers, guys that like traditional great corners like Richard Sherman and last year the Seahawks had Brandon Browner can take away. And the Patriots just have these really weird Swiss Army knife, like non-traditional receiving weapons. So the classic like Seahawks corner, like Richard Sherman, they just had him. The the Patriots were totally happy to like stick some random like Brandon LaFell type guy next to him and just not look at him. And then the Seahawks were the ones who were in trouble having to cover Gronkowski, having to cover Shane Vereen out of oh, the backfield. Those, those mismatches with Gronkowski and the linebacker? Yeah, and, and having to cover Edelman in the slot, too. So it was just interesting to me how similar strategy with slightly different personnel can make a huge difference. All right. So let's talk Tom Brady. He's won four Super Bowls. So now he's in the conversation for one of the best quarterbacks ever. I talk, think- talk about Tom Brady, Mike. 
Okay, this is that conversation that he's in. Of course, he's one of the best quarterbacks ever. Of course, we also have to realize that the thing he did in this game, which is to give his team a lead late in the fourth quarter and a chance to win if his defense did its job, is the thing that he's done in his past two losing Super Bowls against the Giants. I mean, he executed, especially in the perfect season Super Bowl, he executed a late fourth quarter drive that put his team up. So if Russell Wilson gets that that touchdown, I guess we say that Tom Brady isn't in the conversation. We know that. I mean, the difference between one of the all-time greats, because he has four rings, and ah, the, the pretty guy who, you know, hasn't won in a decade, has nothing to do with Tom Brady. It has to do with the other guys. But Brady is clearly awesome. And Belichick, just because of how different, you know, Bradshaw's also in the conversation or whatever. He's won four Super Bowls. That was done. His four Super Bowls were very similar. I mean, there were some Steelers teams that were better offensively than others, but it was the Steel Curtain defense. The Steel Curtain defense was consistent throughout. Belichick and Brady have won Super Bowls with great offenses and okay defenses, with great offenses, statistically terrible defenses. They've won more varied kinds of Super Bowls. I mean, compare it to Walsh and the 49ers and their West Coast offense that had a coaching edge on everyone else for quite a while. I don't know if he's the best it's to me the most impressive body of coaching that I've ever seen, that I can actually ever imagine. I wish you could Belichick a lot of credit for the last play. They put three wide receivers on the field, Seattle did. The, the Patriots defense stayed in its run formation, and the interception was a result of something that they had studied on film and had apparently Belichick, Butler said that Belichick had told him, you have to make that play. He didn't apparently execute it in practice and said, you got to well, look for that He told him that, that he had to route. make that play. So that's well, why he made it. he made him aware of the, <laughs> you, of the possibility of that play. Um, that and then play. he also I didn't the call the timeout at the end that would have gotten so, him completely annihilated, excoriated, yes. annihilated, all of the Eds. If uh, that interception isn't made. Just so it's really let the, great. You know, let the clock run down under 30 seconds. So thankfully, Belichick and the Patriots, because they're so deserving, deserve, you know, that, that things worked out for them. All right. Here at Slate.com, we are trying to learn more about our podcast listeners, people like you. Uh, we want you to tell us about the podcast that you like, uh, how often you listen to them, how you find out about new podcasts as well. Uh, we have a survey. It takes just a couple of minutes to complete. and It would be a huge help. For us, if you would complete it, um, you can help Slate continue to make great podcasts about the things you love and maybe things you didn't even know you loved. Maybe a few things that you don't quite love and you only just like maybe one thing that you hate, but mostly things that you love. To fill out the survey, go to slate.com slash survey, or you can click the link at slate.com slash hang up uh, in the show notes for this episode. That is slate.com slash survey. All right. Joining us now from University of Phoenix Stadium hyphen adjacent hotel, it is uh, Brian Curtis of Grantland. Hello, Brian. Hi. Um, And you were assigned to cover everything that didn't have to do with like the important players. Yeah, that's right. That's sort of my general assignment (laughs) at Grantland, 365 days a year, I think. And somehow the, uh, the unimportant became the important in this game. And I know that that's true because with Malcolm Butler, I forget his name every five minutes and just have to remind myself (laughs) it's not Victor Butler or one of the other Butlers. 
Right. When I was writing my copy last night, I was like, Malcolm Brown? No, Malcolm Bryant? I, I wrote actually a whole draft with, I think, Malcolm Bryant in it. Like, oh, wait, it's Malcolm Butler. There we go. And this is where you need a hack announcer to yell, the butler did it, just to sear it in your head. <laughs> I think that's going to be revived by Chris Berman any minute now. I really do, right? But no, I said a hack. Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Never mind. <laughs> um, so Chris Matthews was the Malcolm Butler of Seattle. You talked to both guys. You actually talked to Matthews at Media Day where he said he had only been interviewed one time before in his entire football career. Yeah, before the NFC Championship game, right, where he recovers the onside kick. He had done a single interview and the reporter was Canadian, which is <laughs> Oh my god, that double, barely counts. Double insult. Uh, of Chris Matthews' life, yeah, and yeah. you know he had this little media moment right after you know after the championship game, but then at media day, I found him wandering alone, uh, signing Richard Sherman jerseys that the fans were handing him out of the stands. So he was back, thrust back into obscurity until last night. So and and the Canadian f- reporter only asked three questions, where American reporters <laughs> get four. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your impression? We all saw, you know, Matthews made those. Amazing catches and never actually had a catch in an NFL game, had those great plays before um, Brandon Browner switched on to him and shut him down a bit. And then we've already talked about Mr. Butler. But what was your impression of those guys? You saw both of them and talked to both of them after the game of kind of how they, you know, felt in the in the aftermath of the Super Bowl. Matthews is really interesting. He comes out, he goes into the Seattle uh, locker room and changes into this immaculate form-fitting suit. Like, it's like he brought the MVP suit to the game, you know, which was amazing because he later admitted in the press conference that he didn't think he was going to get any passes in the game. He wasn't in the game plan at all, uh, to his knowledge. Dress, yeah. dress for the job you want. Dress for the, <laughs> that's exactly right. He had a purple tie and a purple check shirt, um, the, like polished shoes and everything, and he was walking down the uh, through the bowels of the stadium there clutching a football, which was the touchdown he caught in the in the second quarter and he kept the ball and brought that to the podium with him and then he gets to the podium you know and he's you know doing you know saying as they say in sports writing he says all the right things you know i if i didn't have any stats and we'd won the game it would have been a great day but it was really funny because you know earlier in the playoffs i felt that des bryant's amazing catch you know will be for we'll just kind of forget about it right in the nfl in nfl lore that that non-catch counts as nothing these are actual catches in the record book, but I feel in like a week we're going to completely forget about what Chris Matthews did in this game. You know, and, and there's a, there's a strong likelihood he'll never have a game like that in the NFL again. You know, his performance due to events that had nothing to do with Chris Matthews was sort of just wiped off the books in this weird way. And so he was just kind of morose, pretty quiet. He took about 12 minutes of questions, which is more than any other Seattle Seahawk, hilariously, and then he just slunk away, and that was it. I thought this game had kind of everything from a non-important player perspective nah. that you cover so well, Brian. It was the Super Bowl of non-important players. <laughs> First, you had your bad storyline with the Balgazi. You had your bullshit redemptive angle. You know what the Boston Globe headline on the website was right after the game? Oh. Patriots brush aside adversity, dot, dot, <laughs> dot. You had a concussion controversy, which we want to talk about. You had some conservative announcing that reinforces the and the stereotype of the NFL as a bunch of uh, militaristic field operators. And you had a couple of athletes gloating in a way that we can tut-tut. Richard Sherman, you know, the, going after the Darrell Rivas holding up 2-4. 
after the the Seahawks went ahead and then Baldwin's poop in the end zone. So this was kind of it was kind of a nice smorgasbord of uh, of sports bullshit. Yeah, don't forget Brandon Browner going over to his old teammates' uh, sideline right and taunting them after the interception. You know, it had the old teammate angle, mm-hmm. right? Plus the taunting. It was it really really did have everything. It's really beautiful. <laughs> Now, where does Timmy Smith of Washington rank, who ran for 200 yards in the Super Bowl and only and, and did have two games in his career with over 100 yards? Now, it's not that he never caught a catch, but he was the most important player in that Super Bowl. Yeah. Like, does he count as unimportant? I'm trying to figure this On out. On Twitter last night, he was definitely the first reference for Chris Matthews, right? <laughs> Just as the star above Katy Perry was the more you know NBC commercial. Uh-huh. You know, we, all, we, all, we all weep onto the same things at the same time, yeah. don't we? I was, I was a half second after that meme because I was like Googling one to grow on stupidly. <laughs> stupidly. It was the more <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, he, he definitely had that feel, didn't he? I mean, I don't. I mean, it's like it's like if Timmy Smith though had never had a carry in the NFL, it would have been crazy, right? And there are, I think, there are pretty much three places that one could work to make the story great. That are the three classic places of the guy who you hire, quote, off the street: mechanic, substitute teacher, Footlocker. Those are the three. <laughs> I think car salesman is also in the conversation, by the way. Yeah, and I've yeah. always been thrilled by the hired off the street. Because Off the street. It makes it yeah. seem like, of course, these people are all seasonal workers, right? Who are trying to get their marginal football players trying to get seasonal right. work. You wouldn't right. like go work at Dean Witter or something like that, you know? Or well, try it to makes get on them. The it makes them sound like day laborers who are all yeah. like standing, <laughs> standing outside the, the gate corner. at the yeah. training camp. The yeah, John, John Schneider backs up the pickup and he's like, "You, you, yeah, you guy in the striped shirt, you could ref." Actually, it's the Foot Locker uniform. Yeah, whatever. Come on. <laughs> right, that people are twenty-two, right? I mean, they're not. You know, they're, they're waiting on their real career to see if this football thing works out seems like a totally normal place to work so now so we were talking about malcolm butler right and he of course worked at popeyes chris matthews worked at Foot Locker. we all heard malcolm butler worked That'd be a at great popeyes. afternoon you go to get some popeyes you go buy some sneakers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta have one mall with all these guys <laughs> it should be like the nfl replacement player mall, <laughs> yeah. that mall free agent mall that the mall would be, would be a little get them all the mall the sign Richard little, Sherman jerseys for you. The the mall would be a little offset from the avenue cuz it would be off the street. <laughs> oh, I the uh, I thought the Malcolm Butler even had the weirder hand of fate moment because of course he was involved in the in the curse catch which is again talk about things that are going to be wiped out of history, you know, that will be not be remembered as much as they should be remembered. He didn't do anything wrong on that play, right? right? He leapt, he made the play, he either touched it or came really close to touching it. I couldn't quite tell from the replay. But, you know, he was the guy, it's so funny, he pops up on one knee at the seven-yard line and looks over, and his guy is holding the ball, just improbably. And he he saw him in the game, he shoots both of his arms out in kind of that DB gesture of like, oh my God, what just happened, you know? And I asked him about it after the game, and he said, I think I was trying to, like, reach my arms out to try to punch the ball out or something. (laughs) You know, it was kind of like panic slash an actual good football move. And, you know, again, he didn't do anything wrong, but I think if that had been the play of the Super Bowl, if Lynch runs it in two plays later, it's like, you know, we see his, the only time we see this guy is on NFL Network when they replay that play over and over again. He's that guy, right? Not quite Raheem Moore bad because he didn't do anything wrong, but he's just the guy in the play. He also he's Frederick seemed- Weiss, yeah. Yeah, Frederick Weiss, yeah. He's the prop. Um, he, he's the, the Kia that you jump over. So... Butler seemed kind of pleasingly unpolished. Like, he didn't bring a purple tie to the game. This was a guy who legit 
seemed like he had no expectation that Michelle Tafoya would ever like be within a you know, five mile radius of him. Absolutely not. I mean, first of all, he could he was wearing the you know triple X championship shirt over his pads <laughs> and was not able to take it off. That's the, the, it's, the Eli, it's the Eli Manning look. <laughs> yeah, and of course we're all surrounding his locker, and people ask questions, and he's like, "Okay, okay, thank you guys, thank you." And then someone else comes up to him and is like, "You know, can you talk about how you feel right now?" And oh, and he answers it again because of course he loves getting all the questions, and then. Finally, Patrick Chung is like screaming at the media to leave him alone, the uh, New England safety. And finally, people start to back off. But, you know, he had to sit there for like 30 minutes because he couldn't stop answering questions. And you're right, he was totally, he had no prep. He had no, he had no media uh, strategy going in. He was just answering all the questions the best he could. Did they do the thing where all the players got these little podiums and you could go up to these triangular podiums and interview them in those big rooms? Or did you just go <laughs> yeah, to the but, locker room? Yeah, so... Some guys got that. Chris Matthews yeah. got that, for instance, but the butler did not get the podium. And so listeners know there are 15 of these podiums. <laughs> like right. anyone who really, anyone who, I guess they're pre-assigned and, you know, the best 45 players per team get assigned the podium. Oh, not, a, not, if, not if Matthews got one. No, no, they weren't pre-assigned, but there were only like six or seven of them, I think. There were probably 15 total for both teams. Yeah. So I don't know how Butler didn't qualify to me. He seemed like a podium kind of guy. He's going, he's he's going to Disneyland. <laughs> He'll have a podium at Disneyland. So, uh, Brian, Julian Edelman caught the what turned out to be the game-winning touchdown pass. Um, he had more than 100 yards receiving. Um, he made he made a catch that if he doesn't make it, New England probably loses the game. There are a lot of plays like this, but it was the third and 14 play in the fourth quarter, and he got hit in the head by, it looked like, by... Cam Chancellor on the play and was wobbly. Um, Al Michaels noted that he had a hip injury, which seemed a little beside the point in that uh, moment. And there was a report by uh, the Detroit Free Press, I believe, that the guy heard in the press box that the independent neurological consultant dude called down and was like, we need to get this guy a concussion test. And it just never happened, apparently. So in the stadium, uh, what was the discussion about that? Or what did you see with Edelman? I didn't see much because it was, honestly, we're just so far away. You know, I mean, I was reading, I read that on Twitter at the same time. But it was amazing that he just, you know, we were reading it and there was just no, you know, it sort of gives lie to the whole thing, right, that these independent professionals will have the call, Right. You know, they clearly made a call, and the call was ignored or not received or something, right? And, you know, and again, it's so it's so funny to me on broadcast. As much as we know about concussions now, broadcasts mention it, and then they never mention it again. And I don't know what happened on NBC last night, but to me, they always kind of, like, mention it and then never really follow well, I don't up. think Edelman's wasn't even brought up as a possibility on the broadcast. Cliff Averill's concussion was mentioned, the Seattle linebacker. In the context was he got hurt, he got a concussion test, he was taken to the locker room, he wasn't coming back in. And then at one point, I think it was Michelle Tafoya, reported that Cliff Averill wouldn't be able to speak to the media after the game because he had been removed from the game with a concussion. Well, you, uh, for a concussion test. That's what's important. That's yeah. really important. No, I thought, I thought that that was actually interesting. Like, I think she was trying to add something to that. I don't think she was noting that that was the most important thing. I think that's unfair. But there was a, I was there unfair was, on Twitter then. There was a big contrast between how they treated the Averill thing, where they actually did walk you through, as a viewer, all of the right. steps of what happened, and that Edelman thing where it just wasn't mentioned. And honestly, like as a spectator of the game, like in that short-term moment, you don't want Edelman to have to come out of the game. He was the best receiver for the Patriots. I think it was like Mrs. a collective— Edelman, Mrs. Edelman might want him to come out of the game. Yeah, it's like— a, 
collectively America does not have an interest in Mrs. In, Edelman and Julian Edelman's long-term health there. And the Patriots, you know, went with America's vote. We can look at the ratings for the Super Bowl today, right, and confirm that same thing. We care, kind of, right? And then we're, yeah, okay, let's play the game. I would say this. You know how when we speak about terrorism and waterboarding, there is one line of thought saying you have to legalize everything. And in real life, people will make exceptions but you have to letter of the law has to be you know don't waterboard and then if someone screws around with it there'll there'll be enough baked into the system that that person won't be charged if there really is the ticking time bomb i do think that it's important for stefan it's important for you to be consistent it's important for it would have been better if tv had handled this well i do think for the most part the concussion discussion is you know week four the regular season or a guy being pushed out to play and yeah we always talk about guys wanting to play but then we project 30 years down the line, does he think it's a wise decision? I kind of think in the Super Bowl, no matter what, not just in the moment, but even in retrospect, Julian Edelman would have been appalled if he were taken out of the game. Even, let's project 20 years in the future, knowing what he knows now, like there's just no, it's kind of the Super Bowl huge moment exception that maybe we shouldn't write down in the rules anywhere, but as a human being on the planet, I think that Edelman would have still wanted to play, and that would have been actually a rational decision. So waterboarding's okay in some situations, Mike. Well, that is the argument. That is the argument. People argue against it, and they say, what about the ticking time bomb? You know, you say, well, we don't allow waterboarding, but we always illegalize it, but we'll make the exception human beings who are applying these rules to real-life situations. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, the ticking time of being like the destruction of the United States, though, which seems a little different than the Patriots winning the Super Bowl. I think not making a moral. I think Mike just watched Black Sunday on the, on the ride over to, to the studio yeah, today. I got Super Bowl and terrorism all conflated in my head. Brian, you were also noting that there's a moral panic kind of equivalency here between uh, the Edelman concussion and the other things that NBC didn't talk about or show. The poop gazi uh, <laughs> with Doug Baldwin either pooping or laying an egg. I don't know if we were able to get clarity on that after the game. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really funny, like, in all of sports, and especially in Roger Goodell's NFL, right, there's this line between the real moral crisis and the fake moral crisis. And the fake moral crisis is sort of easier to talk about because there's clear villains and, and you know, everybody goes, oh, how dare he, you know, do poop the ball after scoring a touchdown, right? Whereas something like concussion is trickier and it's not really fun to talk about. And if Al Michaels talked about it for three hours, I think everybody would be tweeting like, shut up about this. We were watching the Super Bowl. You're, you're making this boring for us. So, but I, you know, that, that seems to me, I mean, it was, it was of a piece, right, with, Mar- with Marshawn Lynch's press conferences this week and all the other kind of fake, you know, fake moral outrages of, of the year. You know, you can draw this line anywhere in sports, right? Like, you know, letting Jerry Sandusky loose in the Penn State football office is a genuine moral crisis. The NCAA removing and or restoring Penn State's wins is a totally fake moral crisis. Like, who cares, you know, at the end of the day? Brian, did, did you go to Roger Goodell's uh, press conference I on did. Friday? I did. And what was your takeaway? I mean, the, the, you know, the culmination to the season, of course, you know, Roger Goodell talking about humility and what he's learned during the year seems like the greatest fakeness of, of all. Um, <laughs> I don't know about the greatest fakeness because saying I'm available to the media every day of the year might have been the greatest fakeness <laughs> of all. You know, that was one of the great super lies ever uttered from that podium, I think. that was. Really I think that means really he makes phone calls. 
<laughs> Somebody said, "Yeah, you can you can call you know the office and get uh, right." right. I meaning Greg Aiello or Joe Brown R- can say you know Roger's not available today. But of course, if Marshawn Lynch had that, we could just call the Seahawks and they say, "Hey, Marshawn doesn't want to talk today," right? And that would settle for a Marshawn Lynch being available every day of the year. Now, I thought that was pretty amazing, and I thought the um, but you know the other thing, if you watch the whole press conference, the majority of the questions were, "What's the deal with my expansion team?" What's the deal with my stadium? You know, it was kind of an all politics is local moment. I think he got, well, I want to say less than five questions involving his performance or head injuries or, you know, anything like that, right? Or a couple about the flake gate, which is another big who cares. Right. And one of them was from Rachel Nichols, and he responded in a totally arrogant way. Brian, thank you uh, for making yourself available on, the, on this and other days. Appreciate <laughs> Thanks it. Thanks for asking, guys. I appreciate right. it. Take it easy. Bye. All right. An announcement for next week's show, John Hawk, our friend, his new 30 for 30 is coming out, and it's going to be really good. It's called Of Miracles and Men. It's about the 1980 uh, Olympic hockey team, but not the U.S. Olympic hockey team. Uh, Stefan, you have seen it already. I'm excited to see it. I haven't seen it. but You should be excited. It's yeah. terrific. I mean, I'm in the bag for John because I've known him for 30 years. But this is, and he's very proud of this film, too. I mean, the footage from this film is remarkable. It's about the Soviets and only the Soviets. There's only one or two Americans who are actually interviewed in the film, and they're all central to the Soviet side of the story. He got footage from, you know, the Soviet propaganda machine, interviews with uh, with a remarkable number of players and coaches and and children of important figures. You just it's it's just one sort of jaw-dropping clip after another. It's fantastically put together and it's a great story. So we're telling you about this because the premiere is Sunday uh, night, February 8th at 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. So you should watch it on Sunday so um, you can listen to our conversation, which we'll tape on Monday. There'll be other airings, but we just wanted to give you a heads up because you can watch the movie before our conversation. All right. For our final Super Bowl segment, we're joined by Fred Gadelli, the coordinating producer for NBC's Super Bowl coverage. How are you feeling, Fred? Uh, A little deflated. (laughs) No, I'm only kidding. How do you guys celebrate when the Super Bowl's over? Were you more Doug Baldwin or Tom Brady? Definitely not Doug Baldwin. Uh, more Tom Brady. We just came back to the hotel and uh, we sat in the restaurant, had some food, uh, had a few drinks, and discussed the play. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. So walk us through the Seahawks' uh, final drive, just particularly the curse catch and then Malcolm Butler's interception, just what you saw and, and what you guys did uh, around those plays. Well, the curse catch, uh, when it happened, I'm like, did he just catch that? I mean, because I never saw the ball hit the ground, and I have a spotter up in the booth, and I said, where are they marking the ball? And he said, they're marking it right there. I'm like, oh, my God, it's a catch. And I said, guys, it's a catch. And now I'm thinking Seattle may run up to try to just snap it so it's not reviewed in case it's not a catch. So we, we run the replay very quickly, and the first thing that comes in my mind is a game that I wasn't a part of, but it was a Monday night game in 2000, the year before I got there, where Antonio Freeman made a similar catch in overtime, got up and scored, because nobody thought he caught the ball, and Al had one of those, I think the call was, he did what? Uh, So that's the first thing that jumps into my mind, and the second thing is, oh my God, the Patriots are going to lose on another circus catch, you know, for the third straight Super Bowl. So, you know, we run the replays to make sure it's a catch, 
And then once they called the timeout, you know, we came right with Tyree because Tyree was in Arizona and all of that. And now I'm saying to Alan, Chris, as soon as Lynch gets the ball, I'm saying, you think Belichick's going to let him score because that's what he did at the end of the game, that Super Bowl that we did in Indianapolis against the Giants. And I just put it in their heads, and then they start discussing it on the air. And then, voila, a play that'll live in infamy. I have no rooting interest in this game. I mean, I like both quarterbacks. I like both teams. But I, I'm truly sick for Pete Carroll today, man. I mean, I just, I, I, I'm really sick for him. So do you feel like you guys um, did everything that you wanted to do with, I mean, all the stuff that you're talking about with your thought process, this happens in about a minute, two minutes of real time. Do you, you know, feel like you got all the replays that you wanted, you got all the shots that you wanted, and, you know, we haven't talked about the interception yet. Like, do you feel like you had all the coverage that you that you needed to on those plays? Yeah, I mean, again, I've not gone back and watched it yet, but I do. And then on the interception, you know, I think we had three good looks at the interception. And then at that point, to me, it's about agony and ecstasy. And you are documenting, you know, two of the most extreme emotions you know, people can have at that point. And um, I was really happy with, the, you know, the job that our replay producer, Corey Numi, did and all the replay people, you know, getting all those great reactions. I mean, Brady's reaction, like a 12-year-old boy, just like I would have done if I was Tom Brady, you know, Pete Carroll's reaction, Richard Sherman's reaction. So I do think that, you know, hey, we covered the play. Okay, now here's here are the two sides of the coin. And are you are you assigning cameramen those reaction shots? Are you saying we need to get someone on Brady, Sherman, Carroll, Belichick? Well, so you know we have a end of game plan to make sure that all the right people that you would want to see are isolated, and it's the job of the replay producer to uh, make sure that that plan gets executed. So, and there's all scenarios. Hey, if the game ends on a field goal, if the game ends on a kneel down, if the game ends on a touchdown, if the game ends on a turnover, you know, you have all those different scenarios because the cameras change, you know, based on those scenarios. So I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, those guys really executed that, you know, right to the plan. And are those sort of taped to their wrist, like with those, the Velcro, <laughs> like that Tom Brady wears? They tape the plan to their camera. And then the replay producer who sits in another truck, he has the plan in front of him, and he's making sure everybody has their correct assignment on that play, and they all did a great job. It seemed like in this game you had to make more judgment calls on matters of taste than you usually do. Doug Baldwin possibly pooping the ball, but also a a grievous arm-bending injury that maybe America doesn't want to see. Is the calculation different in the Super Bowl? Yeah, a little bit different, but I have to tell you, that broken wrist, I, I, I never could have replayed that on a local, you know, cable UHF station. I mean, it was so gross. I mean, I'm not really affected by, by these things, but when, when, in commercial, when I put up the replay, I, I mean, his arm snapped in half, and his wrist came back to his, you know, basically came back to his elbow in a 90-degree angle. And uh, there is no way. I mean, you couldn't even say... Hey, we have to show something here. It's a little, it's a little disgusting. If you're, if you're queasy, turn away. If you're not queasy, you would have been made queasy by Jeremy Lane's broken wrist. So that I had no doubt about that decision. Doug Baldwin, interestingly, I didn't realize what he did till he got to the commercial because he scores. Drew, you know, is on him, 
and then he spins the ball right in front of the Patriots. So I'm like, okay, that's what the personal foul is. And, you know, we're showing the touchdown and the fact that Rebus got picked by the official in the end zone and, and all of that. And then we got the commercial. Somebody said, hey, look at this. I'm like, ah, forget that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not showing that. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, Doug Baldwin went to Stanford. He knows there's 9,000 cameras on him in this game. What, what are you doing? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't understand, like, what he was doing there. And, look, I know, I know some people are critical for us not showing it, but for what? I mean, to, to show, you know, I, to me it was just, it was, I mean, I looked at it briefly. I mean, briefly. I looked at it, like, five seconds, and I'm like, uh-uh, forget it. Just move on. So I guess the counterargument is just that it's a thing. You know, the, peop- the people uh, wanted to see that. You could see, you could tell on uh, Twitter and, and uh, after the game, it's something that people were talking about. Yeah, I know. I mean, the people, you know, there, there's certainly a segment that wants to see it. And, you know, like, yeah, I think I've said this before, you know, you're making, this, you know, you're making decisions in real time with really no time, you know, to analyze, you know, the pros and cons of what you do. So you go with your gut. And, you know, I just didn't feel like it was worthy to go back to. There were two other things that I wondered about. One was you cut away from Gronk spiking the ball and went to Brady. Yeah, but we'd like to have that one back. Uh, no question. <laughs> we, we'd like to have that one back. And the second was, was there any awareness in the truck, Fred, after Julian Edelman was what looked to be potentially concussed and about having a conversation about whether he had been examined or trying to find out a little bit more about what that situation was or, or re-showing those replays to sort of focus on the head injury, if there was one. You know, it's interesting, it's interesting you say that because uh, at the post-game party last night, I was sitting uh, with uh, my boss, Mark Lazarus, and he was saying, he goes, hey, I don't think you realize this, because if you recall, he ran 20 yards after you know being down, and no one thought he was down. So at that point, I'm focused on, hey, is his arm on the ground? Did his knee touch the ground? And I'll be honest with you, I did not see the shot, you know. But he said to me, he goes, man, he was woozy. He was definitely knocked woozy and probably should have come out of the game. I honestly did not see it. Do you think you should have an independent neurological <laughs> consultant in the truck? <laughs> <laughs> probably not a bad idea, but you know, it's, you know, it's crazy. Obviously, there's an independent, you know, head athletic trainer up in the booth really looking for those things. But, you know, all he can do is call down to the sideline and say, this guy needs to be checked, but he can't make the team go out there and check him. But I've, I've not watched anything back yet. I'm about to do that in a little while. Uh, but my um, Mark Lazarus was saying to me, he goes, when you see this, you're going to see he was kind of knock silly. Roger Goodell declined uh, an interview request with uh, Bob Costas, I guess, was going to be the one who did it now. I don't know. I haven't kept stats on it. It just seems like during the Super Bowl, the commissioner always does an interview. Is that true? And was it surprising to you that they that he was not made available to the network that was airing the Super Bowl? I don't know if that's an every year thing. I can't tell you. I'm trying to think back at the Super Bowls I've done, if we've always had the commissioner. Uh, I can't remember if we had Roger in Indianapolis or not. So, I really don't know the answer to that. I know that we really wanted to interview him. Uh, I know that we were all disappointed mm-hmm. that the interview was declined. Look, it's obviously been an unusual year, to say the least, on Park Avenue in New York City. So, you know, for whatever reasons they thought they declined the interview, we certainly pursued it. We really pursued it for a long time, and we're hopeful, you know, up until the middle of the week that it could happen. 
but uh, it was declined. So I wonder if you saw the game the same way that I did. It, it was maybe the first pro or even college game I saw this year where there really were no close calls. Um, right, yeah, we talked interesting. To, we talked about this two weeks ago. Like mo- A lot of our conversation was about you could have an effect on the game with a big replay. There were no questionable fumbles. There was no going to the ground. There was no, is a guy inbounds or out of bounds? Very few penalties. Also, no bobbled balls. Forget almost not caught balls. I think everything thrown that could have been caught was caught. That plays into it. So do you see stuff like that as a disruption? And then given that none of that stuff happened, you were just able to kind of call the game and show the game that you wanted to show? Yeah, I would say yes. I mean, I think, you know, we talked about this last time that in that divisional game that I did, you know, like every replay, every touchdown was investigated. You know, let's investigate why it may not be a touchdown. But we didn't have any of those types of plays in this game. The curse play, you know, was probably the one where you had to see it a couple of times to make sure it is what it was. But, you know, as a TV producer, I mean, that's what you want. You want flow. You know, that game just flowed. You know, there was very little ebb. There was a lot of flow. That's what you really aspire to have happen when you're, you know, when you're televising any sport. So Collinsworth, after the uh, interception, was very strong in saying that he thought it was a bad play call. Is that what you want from your color guy? Well, I want him to be honest, and I want him to you know, say what he really thinks. And obviously, that's what he really thought, so yeah. You know, it'll be a play that lives in infamy and will be, you know, discussed probably for, you know, 50 years. And I thought Chris handled it well. I mean, I think he he had a uh, snap judgment. Uh, he backed up his snap judgment with some fact. And, you know, I'm I'm always more than comfortable with Chris's opinions because they come with hours and hours and hours and hours of research and, and talking to players and talking to coaches. So I thought he really did his job in that moment. So the big star of the game was Malcolm Butler making that interception at the end, and the star of the first half was Chris Matthews of Seattle, caught the touchdown with two seconds to go. How much prep did you do on those guys, and were you caught unawares at all? I mean, it sounded like you you had the facts about the footlocker, you knew all that stuff. Like, were you scrambling during the game, or did you have all that on a 3 by 5 index card? No, I mean, you know, Al and Chris obviously had notes on Chris Matthews. I could tell you in all our meetings with the Seahawks, the name Chris Matthews was never mentioned. We were talking about it, you know, as the uh, Chris Matthews on uh, hard hardball. <laughs> but uh, the one thing we had on Chris Matthews was he recovered the onside kick in the NFC Championship game against Green Bay. So we had that clip. So at halftime, I, had, I said to my edit producer, hey, do me a favor, just take the recovered onside kick and the big catch down the sideline and the touchdown catch and put those together in case this guy comes back in the second half and does it again. And I was ready to do it, but I never had the – I had a choice to make at one point. A, that he had the second most yards of any undrafted wide receiver in the history of the Super Bowl, which was the graphic we put in with Brad Smith, or go to that other package. But Al and Chris were well prepared. Malcolm Butler, you know, I think this was our fifth Patriot game this year. So he had come up in discussions over the course of the season as, you know, a role player, a contributor, a guy that, you know, Belichick liked for certain roles. You know, and again, I thought Chris really did, you know, you know, great analysis on that, just saying that, you know, look, he read it from the beginning. He saw where it was coming. He ran to the spot, which is what they're coached to do to try to get to the intersection of the man and the ball. 
you know, I thought we did a good job on that. And I thought Michelle Tafoya did a great job running him down, you know, <laughs> to get his, literally, you know, literally, literally, uh, you know, to get his, uh, you know, thoughts and emotions on what will go down maybe as the biggest play in the history of the Super Bowl, at least the first 49. So you guys must have had conversations leading up to the game about how much to mention Balgazi, Deflategate. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And right after the game ended, there was discussion from Al and Chris about whether this victory was tainted by the accusations. Was there a thought that maybe, like, let them revel in their victory? As a pa- I don't care, and I thought it was fine, like, as a neutral observer. But as a Patriots fan, maybe I would have been like, come on, guys. Let us enjoy this for like 12 seconds before you mention the deflated footballs. Yeah, you know, it was, uh, there's a lot of discussion about that leading in. And, you know, we felt like it had to be addressed. And we even had Michelle, you know, grab, you know, Mr. Kraft, who was gracious enough to come on before he stepped onto the podium to address it. I mean, she asked him, you know, hey, there's going to, based on what happened in the AFC Championship game, you know, there's going to be a large amount of fans who are going to think that this championship's in question. Yeah, question, question the legitimacy of the championship, I think she said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, we felt like that had to be done because there were going to be, I mean, you're citing all the people that are upset about Doug Baldwin. I think it would have been 20 times the amount of people that would have been upset. Like, hey, they just crowned them like nothing ever happened. And I have, I mean, truly, having been around this thing now for two weeks, I have no idea what to believe. I really don't. But there is a large segment of people who have one opinion. There is another segment of people that have another opinion. And to just let it go unaddressed, I thought would have been irresponsible journalism, you know, on our part. And the one thing we didn't want to do was take away from the moment up on the podium when the Lombardi Trophy is presented. So we felt like, hey, we just had to do that there so the Patriot fans could revel in their moment when the trophy was presented, when Kraft spoke, when Bill Belichick spoke, when Tom Brady spoke. And, you know, that was the judgment we made. But there was a lot of discussion that went into it. The Vegas prop was over under three for mention of the word deflate. Do you know if you hit the prop? I don't. Do you? (laughs) No, I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) You think you said deflate three times? I'm looking it up. I can't find it. I think probably. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know we addressed it at the very top when Al came on. I don't know if he used the word deflate or not. I know we talked about it one other time in the second quarter, and I think we hit it one other time at the beginning of the fourth quarter. We did not want to make a big deal. The one regret I had, I really wanted to shoot the process of how the balls are measured, and I thought the league would really go along with that just because of you know transparency and all that, but they decided that was not in their best interest. I just wanted to show America what it is, you know, how benign an act this is. And um, I had done it before for other reasons years and years ago, but we were denied that opportunity this time. Well, Fred, we always uh, appreciate you coming on and sharing what it's like from your perspective. And I understand not wanting to evince too much knowledge of the prop bets. Um, <laughs> but we look forward to talking to you again and enjoy the off season. It's always enjoyable, and uh, I think we're going to have the record audience. Ooh, do it so. for Fred. Hashtag do, do it, it for Fred. Fred. It worked. Our hashtag campaign. Just for just because of you guys. That's it. <laughs> All right. Thank you, sir. All right. Take care, guys. All right. It is now time for After Balls, and we've done our research since recording the intro to the show. Katy Perry's Dancing Sharks do actually 
have dance training. There's one in particular, Scott Myrick, who in BuzzFeed's telling is a hot dude. Is that correct, Stefan? Hot dude. Us Magazine says he's a really hot dude and part of the Taylor Swift feud. And I'm not going to read enough to find out what that means. But he's a highly trained shark dancer, right? He is. I don't know. Was he the shark on the left or the right is the question. Because the one on the, the left, as we're looking at the screen, seemed to be out of sync. I'm going, he must have been the guy on the right because he was perfect. All right, Mike. What is your Myrick? So before the game, I was watching the game before the game. Of course, I speak of Kitten Bowl 2. Kitten Bowl 2 on the, do you know what network? Hallmark? Hallmark Network was an atrocity, was a holocaust, was an abortion of puns and Boomer Esiason and John Sterling. Now, you ask yourself, all right, how bad could it be? Can John Sterling ruin his legacy such as John Sterling's legacy is by doing Kitten Bowl 2? Yes, the answer is yes, he can. Because he engaged in the worst scripted banter I have ever ever heard at one time he said to boomer Esiason, and by the way i guess they figure we have cute kittens playing with a football you can't go wrong with that and they're right but man did they test that theory and take it to the limit so at one point boomer who's not even looking in the right camera and it's not live the whole idea so puppy bowl is live and they do i think most of it's live it seems live and uh they're like making funny jokes or whatever references to what's going on with the puppies Everything with kitten bulk, since kittens do what they want to do on their own, sweet kitten time seems pre-recorded, and then it's all scripted afterwards. It is the worst script, and I'm a guy who likes terrible puns. So at one point, John Sterling says to Boomer Esiason, Now, Boomer, didn't you play for a cat team? And Boomer says, I think you might be thinking of the Cincinnati Bengals. And didn't you run the no-cuddle offense? And then Boomer says, I think you're thinking of the no-huddle offense. And then John Sterling says, that's what I said, the no-cuddle offense. And then Boomer says, no, the no-huddle offense. And it was all scripted. They had to say it. It was so appalling. Anyway, the cats had kind of okay names, except I think they screwed up a little. So some of the cats, I think the best names for the cats in um, Kitten Bowl were Clawvin Johnson, a.k.a. Meowcatron. That's okay. <laughs> Ryan Fitzcatrick. That was pretty good. Matt Ferte. Eh, I'll buy that one. But then they also mixed in Puffy, Willie, <laughs> Basil. <laughs> so you had on one team, the North Pole Panthers, you had Aaron Podgers and Puffy. <laughs> Mario Meowingham <laughs> and Willie. <laughs> on the Hallmark Movies and Mysteries Mountain Lions, you had Brian Erlitter, Devin Hister, Jadavian Clawney, Joe Fluffo, and Sprinkles. Joe Fluffo? Joe Fluffo. They also had Stray Matthews and Spike. (laughs) (laughs) So it was just this weird mismatch or mishmash of kind of attempts at puns. And I'm just waiting. Oh, Joe Montuna was one of them. I'm just waiting the whole time for Jimmy Clausen. You don't even have to do a pun. And they never come out with the Jimmy Clausen. Some of them were really strained, like William the Litterbox Purry. No, because there's two puns in one. You used to go William Litterbox Perry or the refrigerator Purry would be okay. And then and there's a, a few references to the fact that Katy Perry's fans are named Katie Katz and Katy Perry's cat is named Kitty Purry. They, they, they didn't even touch that. I don't know why. 
Siamese Watkins. That's got to be as bad or worse than any that they Steve came up with. Perline. <laughs> <laughs> Stefan, what is your Myrick? Well, there was another world championship game played yesterday, and for skullduggery and intrigue, it was way more interesting than the one in Arizona. I speak, of course, of the finals of the World Handball Championship, hosted by our new international sports overlords, the state of Qatar. Spain beat Poland 29-28 in overtime to take third place, and then came the finals. France was one of the contestants, and who was the other? Was it world number one Germany? Nope. Was it the plucky Olympics darling Iceland? Was not. Perhaps one of the handball-mad Balkan nations? No, not them either. Playing France in the finals was none other than Qatar. The host country isn't exactly an international handball power. Coming into the tournament, Qatar was ranked 32nd in the world. Qatar had actually qualified for previous world championships. Who could forget its dramatic run to 23rd place in the 2014 tournament in Germany in 2007? Thank God for Australia. But it would have taken some serious divine assistance to imagine a Qatari run into the knockout rounds, let alone to the finals. Well, that or an even more potent form of intervention, one that Qatar, of course, has in abundance, money. With an assist from the FIFA quality sportocrats at the International Handball Federation, Qatar bought itself a world-class handball team just in time to host the World Handball Championships. Handball has this convenient rule. If you haven't played for a national team in three years, you can change nationalities. So Qatar recruited a dozen or so pretty good players who either were out of their national team pictures, a little bit older, or didn't care because money. More than half of the Qatar roster was from somewhere else. The left back was French. The goalies were from Montenegro and Bosnia. There were a couple of Spaniards, an Egyptian, a Cuban, a Tunisian, a couple more Montenegrins and Bosnians. You say this happens in soccer? Well, not if a player has no connections whatsoever to the new country and not if he's played at the senior level before, as was the case with most of the proud new Qataris who were all quickly naturalized after Qatar was awarded the tournament and then moved to and played in Qatar with each other. During the tournament, Qatar's Spanish coach refused to answer questions about the international lineup. It's better to talk about handball, okay, he said. As the proud Qataris started knocking off European sides, complaints started mounting. Phantom penalties, ticky-tack calls against opponents, no calls for Qatar, refs allegedly in the tank for the home team. On Team Handball News, a former head of refs for the International Federation wrote that referees who have a reputation for being particularly capable of standing up to pressure weren't assigned to Qatar's knockout round games and that less resistant referees influenced Qatar's wins over Austria, Germany, and Poland. He said Federation sportocrats tried to help out the home teams in 2007 and 2009 also. After losing in the semifinals in Qatar, the Polish team sarcastically applauded the referees during post-game ceremonies. Handball's leader is an Egyptian who apparently has learned from the Sepp Blatter playbook using Middle Eastern oil money to buy loyalty from small non-European nations and using his autocratic powers to push the sport. Over the summer, the Federation changed its rules and booted Australia from the tournament after it had already qualified so that it could make room for Germany, which hadn't but would have been a good draw. It was all very FIFA in other ways. Qatar built three new stadiums for the tournament. It flew in Pharrell Williams' Gwen Stefani and Jason Derulo and a bunch of other performers. It also imported fans to cheer for the home team. 60 people from Spain among them, sort of like North Korea did during the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, said one of those fans, 
It is a good enough offer to make you cheer them on in their matches, even if they are playing against Spain. It's all paid for by Qatar, so those are the ones we have to support. My handball buddy John Ryan said a friend of his saw fans changing jerseys to change allegiances between games. So this is what we'll be treated to in seven years when Qatar hosts Soccer's World Cup, using connections and millions to land big events, building multiple stadiums in a country the size of New Jersey, paying athletes to change nationalities. I can't wait, but there was some justice here, Josh. France did win the final 25 to 22. Phew. Yes. That was amazing. Which? The whole thing. (laughs) Handball. Handball. Qatar. Qatar. Sportocrats. Josh, what's your Scott Myrick? Uh, We just talked to Fred Goodelli, and we love the guy, my favorite coordinating producer of football. He gave an answer that I did not agree with when we had him on two weeks ago, though, um, when he said that football broadcasts haven't embraced analytics because these sorts of numbers only appeal to a small percentage of the audience. I don't agree with that. I think a huge percentage of viewers would care about, for example, um, you know, how often teams convert fourth downs. But there is one example I would point to in particular of uh, analytics making Fred's point. If I were Fred and, and making this debate, I would point to ESPN's tennis coverage and the way that they use the branded IBM Insights. So the IBM Insights purport to reveal the keys to success for each player, takes into account eight years of data from majors, takes into account the court surface, and it analyzes head-to-head matchups and performances versus similar opponents. That all sounds good. So after three games and the first set of the Australian Open men's final between Djokovic and Andy Murray, the IBM insights were revealed. So here's the insight for Murray, you guys. If he won 37% of his first serve return points, he had an 80% chance to win the set. For Djokovic, if he won more than 58% of four to nine shot rallies, he had a 93% chance to win the set. So if I did not actually see this on my TV screen, I would think it was a satire of how not to use statistics in sports. As a viewer, I am not going to know intuitively if Murray has won 37% of his first serve return points. This is not information that I will be able to use in any way. And then there's the fact that if he does win 37% of his first serve return points, he'll only have an 80% chance to win the set. So what ESPN and IBM are asking us to do is monitor a stat that is impossible to monitor because if a certain player hits an incredibly precise figure in that stat, then he will maybe win the set sometimes. So not all of the IBM insights are that esoteric. In the women's final, um, they said that if Serena Williams were to win at least 71% of her first serve points, she would have an 83% chance to take a set from Maria Sharapova. So basically do well on the serve, win the set. That seems obvious. But others are even more baffling than that 37% of first serve return points thing. Consider IBM's (laughs) suggestion, which I found via the Australian Open Slam Tracker website, that Murray should win the set 64% of the time against Djokovic if between 58 and 73% of his winners were forehands rather than backhands. That is news you can use, Stefan. Um, So since I was not keeping a tally in real time, I checked after the match, found that Murray did win 37% of his first serve return points in three of the four sets in Sunday's final. Hooray. Hooray for Andy Murray. Grand Slam champion. Actually, no. He lost 
two of those three sets, including the fourth and decisive set where Djokovic blanked him 6-0. But Murray was consoled, I'm sure, that even though he won zero games and lost the match, he did win 42% of his first serve return points in the fourth set. Way to go, Andy Murray. So maybe if you win 42% of your first service return points, though, you lose six love. They didn't take that into account. No. It's, a, it's just a blip in the inside. It's the if. The if. All right, we love your feedback. When we talked about today, you can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our producer is Mike Fuolo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, Slate Supreme Court correspondent and host of Amicus. On each episode of our podcast, We talk about the latest goings-on at the court and among the justices. We even take you inside the court to hear snippets of the oral arguments themselves. But on our latest episode, we consider the question of why the court makes that audio available but doesn't allow us to see it on video. You can find that episode by searching for Amicus in the iTunes store or just visit slate.com slash podcasts. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.